Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is The Guardian. It seems to me that it's almost a polar opposite this time around where the problem is not that wages are spiralling but wages aren't moving and that people have lost trust in that, particularly off the back of the global pandemic. I think that people are looking at this summit not as a bit of incremental machinery but more what is going to come out that's actually going to shift the game and maybe give more power back to individuals on the way the system works. Hello and welcome to the Australian Politics Podcast. I'm Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent for Guardian Australia, filling in for Murph while she's on leave writing the next quarterly essay. And I'm here today to analyse the latest Guardian Essential poll data. I'm joined by Peter Lewis, Executive Director at Essential Media, to guide us through the numbers. This week, we discuss a wide range of topics, from the secret portfolios Scott Morrison held while he was Prime Minister and electric vehicles, to Labor's job summit next week, and whether it could lead to any major industrial reforms. This talk was recorded on Tuesday, and it comes from a webinar hosted by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. If you would like to follow along and have a look at the slides discussed during the episode, you can find them on the Essential Media website. This conversation was moderated by Ebony Bennett, the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. I'll hand over to Ebony now, who starts by asking me about what's been going on in the last fortnight. Sarah, first to you. I know you've just come from the Prime Minister's press conference. Tell us about the last couple of weeks in politics. <laughs> well, I don't know if we can remember two weeks ago because <laughs> the, the past week has just been so overwhelmingly dominated mm-hmm. by the, the Scott Morrison secret ministry scandals. And it's sort of like the, you know, the cold dead hand of the, the Morrison government, uh, <laughs> you know, re- reaching out from the grave and uh, just just for one final um, grand hurrah. So um, <laughs> it has been a pretty extraordinary week. Um, obviously, the revelations were, were sort of first sort of mildly reported in the Australian um, just over a week ago um, uh, from a book called Plagued, uh, which was sort of slightly uh, a bit of a hagiography of, of Scott Morrison's handling of the of the pandemic. Um, and in that, we learned that he'd taken over the, the health and finance portfolios. Um, and then it was kind of quickly revealed that he took over, had also taken over industry and resources. Um, and then after uh, Anthony Albanese launched an investigation, we learned that he'd also taken on Treasury uh, and Home Affairs. So for those who haven't noticed uh, this this particular scandal unfolding, that's that's sort of the the short version. But obviously, there's lots of lots and lots of questions still to be answered. Um, there's uh, interesting advice from the Solicitor General today, basically confirming that um, while the decision was was legally valid, it 
fundamentally undermined responsible government, which I think we we all sort of felt in our bones, uh, and obviously had been the the reason there had been so much uproar um, about this move. So it has been a big week. It has been a big week. <laughs> Yeah, there's lots to get into. Um, Pete, I wonder if we can get stuck in to the results here from today's Guardian Essential poll. And and apologies, we almost did a recall of our poll so that we could um, find out what people thought about the former Prime Minister, but we were already in the field. What we did have was kind of a different approach to testing leadership. So normally we ask around whether people approve or disapprove of the job individuals are doing as, you know, prime minister or opposition leader. What we thought would be also interesting is just to get a general level of um, favourability. So this is not connected to doing their job. This is just sort of trying to get a sense of the vibe of um, some of our leaders. And we've put a few of them in the field and it's interesting. So we're asking people to rate from... um, zero to 10, how they feel about our elected leaders. And and these are the results. We've clustered them in kind of positive in the seven to 10, neutral four to six and negative zero to three. And you can see here that, you know, our prime minister, when he's not knocking back beers at gangs of youth, um, (laughs) is seen as a net positive. 43% are sort of in that seven to 10 range another 28% in the mid-range, just a quarter of people not really warming. You can kind of see some differences there. Um, If you're listening to on the pod and you can't see the screen, Peter Dutton, as opposed to Anthony Albanese in that 7 to 10, just has 26% of people that warm to the Dutton vibe, Um, 34% in the 0 to 3 there. We also tested um, that favourability with um, some of the other leaders of minor groups. So David Littleproud, who is he, you may ask, is someone that has got a little bit of 21 positive in that high positive, 27 negative, but then far more never heard of, 20% all up with, with no real understanding of who the fella is. We also checked Adam Bant, Jackie Lambie and Pauline Hanson just to have a sort of a fabric of favourability around the place. It's interesting. The the Green leader and the One Nation leader are much more polarising. So the number of rating in the in the real negative territory for Bant, it's 37. For Hanson, it's 48, as opposed to low 20s in the high range. And then you've got Jackie Lambie, who is, we've always said she's a balanced character, but there, there's real balance. <laughs> 27 high, 27 low, 33 in the middle, and then a few that have never heard of her aren't sure. Um, What does that tell us? It tells us that the mainstream leaders actually have a stronger base, that the leaders of parties on the edges by nature more polarising, hardly surprising. Um, But a nice little, I think think the interest is there if we go back to that every quarter. We'll start building a bit of a series and seeing if those ratings move over time. So after that, we started preparing ourselves for um, the upcoming Jobs and Skills Summit and trying to get a sense of what the electorate is expecting and wanting from our leaders. And we threw a couple of propositions which we forced people to make a choice on just to, to see where the dial lands. The first of these questions is giving people a choice between 
the proposition that Australia's economic system is broken and the government needs to make fundamental changes to sort it out and the proposition Australia's economic system is basically sound and the government should only make minor adjustments to make it better. 5842 see the system as broken. And if you go to the next slide, Ed, what's really interesting to me is that this is not a partisan issue. 54% of Liberal voters see the system as fundamentally broken. 59% of Labor voters, 62% of Greens, 66% of those that, that vote for minor parties or independents. And it got me thinking about the summit and I guess reflecting on this idea that we're rerunning the 1983 job summit that Bob Hawke held in the early days of his government, which was really the precursor to the opening up of the economy underpinned by the Wages and Income Accord. And while a lot of people are saying this is kind of a rerun of that, it strikes me it's actually the opposite. What 83 was about was giving Australia, getting the social licence to basically open the economy up and integrate with the global economy, um, underpinned by a social safety net that meant that the impacts weren't as strong or as, as hard, I guess, as Reagan and Thatcher, but still part of that global integration. It seems to me that it's almost a polar opposite this time around, where the problem is not that wages are spiralling, but wages aren't moving and that global system, people have lost trust in that, particularly off the back of the global pandemic. So what does all that mean? I think that people are looking at this summit not as a bit of incremental machinery, but more what is going to come out that's actually going to shift the game and maybe give more power back to individuals on the way the system works. Yeah, and um, Sarah, if I can just bring you in on this next one, we've got here 80% of respondents said government should have an active role in shaping the economy and just 20% governments should stay out and leave it up to the market. It strikes me that that is completely the opposite of how basically most economists and business leaders have talked about the economy for the last 20 years at least. There's been a real shift in attitudes there, hasn't there? Yeah, look, I, I thought this was um, possibly the most fascinating response in the poll. Um, and I, I couldn't help but wonder whether the pandemic and obviously the government's role managing the pandemic had really shaped and and perhaps changed people's opinions on that. Um, and I guess we've also seen repeated instances of market failure and people are now starting to feel that in their lives and their everyday um, cost of living concerns. Um, so in some ways it's surprising, but in other ways it makes perfect sense. So um, obviously that leaves the free marketeers very much um, on the fringe um, with most people wanting to see the government take an active role in shaping the economy. And that's obviously bodes well for Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers as they're sort of developing a reform agenda. They've made no secret of the fact that they do want to be reformist. I think we could probably all cool our jets a bit about the likelihood of that happening in this term of government. But I think the game plan is really to uh, use this term to sort of bed down uh, some ideas. Um, you know, nothing radical in their first term. They, they definitely want to win a second term, but then and obviously keep a close eye on the reform agenda that they take to the next mm. election. So, and obviously yeah. the Jobs and Skills Summit is a huge part of sort of, you know, developing that platform. Yeah. yeah. And, again, and again, just to Sarah's point, I reckon for the last 30 years, reform has almost been, it has meant 
government moving out, like reform has been, deregulation has been smaller government. I think the whole nature of reform is shifting. And so if a reform agenda is to come up with a more ambitious role for government, that is that 180 degrees shift. And yet, as you can see on this, it's across all parties again. Yeah. Just to make that choice, coalition voters are 77, 23 up for I just find that amazing. Government. 77, three quarter, more than three quarters of coalition voters think government should take an active role in shaping the economy. So, so the, quest, the question, though, is if there is that much enthusiasm for these propositions, where does the resistance come? And I think that will be interesting to see how the debates around the job summit play out. Um, there's been a bunch of ideas rolled out. Some quite radical, but I know Sarah led with the price caps, but 69% support price caps on essential services like energy, 61% placing taxes on companies that make additional profits due to rising inflation. This is government intervention, setting paying conditions across industries rather than individual workplaces. It's over 50%. And the, the negatives on these are under 10%. Like there's minuscule opposition to these propositions. So they're not even, it's not even like we've got a 30-30-30, you know, which is, you know, those policy debates where, you know, you've got two sides and undecided in the middle. Like it's one-sided. Um, the lowest one and the only one that we've really flagged is going to happen is the increase in skilled migration, which 47 and 18 opposed. But that is the only one of those elements that you would say, a part of a neoliberal agenda. The rest of it is that idea of reform the way they used to do it before the yeah. 1983 summit. Um, and if we can just come to the last one here, attitudes to groups' views of the economy. Why did you ask about this one, Pete? I was just interested in who'd have a credible voice at the summit. Um, I'm interested how strong small business is seen as being to act in the best interest. So we asked, to what extent do you agree or disagree that following groups' views of the Australian economy align with your best interests? So 56% say small business, 51% say community organisations, which I guess we meant civil society, 36% unions. That's interesting. That's about double the current rate of unions in the country with another 35% neither support nor oppose. So they have a seat at the table and the lowest is big business, but no one ever likes big business, right? But um, and, and where you can see the attacks against any sort of government intervention agenda coming is from that group that's got the least amount of social capital, big business, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to come back now to you, Sarah. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. And the government, I think, has been really making an effort to kind of manage expectations about what's going to come out around the job summit. Um, I think mm. the Prime Minister was pointing out, you know, you don't solve a massive skills or jobs crisis, you know, after one day or two days of a, of a summit. But there is a huge expectation here that people uh, are having happy for the government to intervene. They're wanting to see reforms and to make the economy work better. 
how well is that expectation management going, do you think? And um, and is it shaping up to be a good summit for the Albanese government? Um, well, the Prime Minister has already made the point that he thinks it's a good summit uh, before it's even begun because obviously people are talking about this and it's really focused the minds of the community and businesses and industry and unions. Um, look, I, I think he's sort of talked down the prospect of another grand accord, you know, sort of suggested that it's not a hawk redux. Uh, that was the situation at the time and decisions were made that suited the economic times in the 80s. So he sort of, I guess, put a bit of cold water on the idea that there's going to be some grand bargain that's cut, that comes out of this summit. Um, I mean, we know that obviously the, the refrain we're hearing from every single industry group at the moment is that workforce challenges are a huge issue. Um, so there is going to be uh, something on skilled migration. I think there's no doubt about that. And the government has made it pretty clear that they're looking at increasing the intake over the next few years. Years. Uh, we sort of have a situation where numbers haven't returned to pre-pandemic levels, but there's also, you know, obviously limits to that and what, what that can actually solve. And of course, um, there are concerns about how that might play into wage growth. So um, there's going to be a lot of views aired. There's only 100 people attending the summit and obviously that uh, guest list has been kept pretty tight for a reason. Um I think, you know, there's also also the possibility that uh, there could be a bit of a breakaway accord sort of between the BCA and the ACTU, which is obviously there's mixed views about whether or not that would be a good thing or not. Um, you can expect to hear discussion about industry-level bargaining and then, of course, many of the things that the, the poll asked about. So um, it, it's a big agenda um, in terms of outcomes that you're right. The Prime Minister has said, you know, we're not going to fix it after two days of, of summiting, um, but certainly it gives them a, a good base from which to build, you know, some policy decisions that they'll take and, and I expect will be sort of finalised and announced in the October budget. And Pete, I mean, whatever comes out of this, uh, as the polling shows, there's just, it seems like an enormous appetite and support from the public to back some interventions here to make things yeah. work better. There, there is an appetite for ambition that I'm picking up in these numbers. Um, I'm not quite old enough to remember the 83 summit. I was still in high school, but maybe some of the people that are joining us in chat would have been closer to it at the time. But I think the other thing looking back at that that I find interesting is that it wasn't that all the big decisions on opening the economy were made in that two-day summit, but the sense of that partnership between the different parts of the economy was forged at the summit and that enabled the broader reform program that rolled out through the 80s and into the 90s and delivered the social wage and also stabilised the economy. Um, so, of course, you can't summit your way to an economic reform agenda in two days and there are serious self-imposed guardrails the government placed on themselves in order to get into power as well. So there are a number of design constraints. But I do think that if we remember the one promise that the Prime Minister did made was to make the economy work for people. And I think even if we got to the point where the summit was looking at um, the economic challenges through the eyes of workers rather than through the broader system, it will be a really important step forward. And then, of course, you've got workers in key areas, you've got the caring economy workforce, you've got the disability workforce, um, Indigenous workforce. But if you look at those as people rather than as widgets in a system, I think it will open the way for a really important 
reform agenda over hopefully not just one term but a number of terms of Labor government. Yeah, but Sarah, coming back to you, I do think that role of summits like the Job Summit, like the Revenue Summit um, in the lead up to the budget, really just opening up this economic debate, which for so long I feel like has excluded the public to a certain extent, really focusing quite narrowly on whatever the Business Council of Australia thought was valuable. Now we've got kind of unions coming to the table. Civil society feels like it's back in that conversation. It feels like we might get some different results here because there might be some more diverse people around the the table. Does that seem like the approach to you that the government is kind of inviting more people into the conversation? Oh, absolutely. I think I think very much the message that we're getting from the New Albanese government is they are in a listening phase um, and that everyone is invited to put their views forward at, at this stage. And, you know, that's obviously very different to what we had under the Morrison government and the preceding coalition governments in that, uh, you're right, they had very sort of narrow interests in their ear. Um, there were a lot of community groups who felt that they struggled to be heard. Uh, obviously, the unions didn't, you know, struggle to, to get a look in as well. So I think there is a view that you know, the, the government is hearing from, from everyone. Albanese has made it pretty clear he wants to be a consensus type of leader. Um, I don't think he's going to, you know, suddenly turn around and um, you know, piss off the BCA or the big uh, employer groups. He's not that kind of leader, I don't think. Um, so he will be looking for areas of consensus uh, to, to come out of this. Um, I think it's also fair to say that he's made it pretty clear that he's not intending to ruffle any feathers anytime soon. He's yes. he's in a good position in the polls, as we know, um, when he's been asked about major reforms, things like mm. super profit tax, um, things like winding back the stage three tax cuts. Uh, he's been very clear that he's not going to, he's not for turning on any of those big picture things at this point, um, whether or not that changes after the summit. And um, I think it's pretty clear that he's sort of treading, treading soft um, and, you know, I, I don't think we're going to get any sort of major dramatic reform, but I think we are going to at least have the government listening to a range of, of mm-hmm. stakeholders, and I'm sorry to use that word. Yeah. Um, Sarah, I want to come now to integrity, I guess because of the the five secret ministerial mm. appointments, kind of um, a hot topic. The opposition is obviously trying to downplay the seriousness of it and kind of say this whole reaction's a bit overblown. But the finding that it it has seriously undermined the principles of good governance is, is not a small finding. And, you know, I think it's very valid to look at this and be like, well, we have to prevent something like this from ever mm-hmm. happening again. What are we expecting out of the Solicitor General's advice today and then a potential, you know, investigation or committee mm. through parliament looking into mm. this a bit more. So so what Anthony Albanese has said today is that in, in addition to the Solicitor, Solicitor General's advice that he has received and now reviewed is that they're going to establish another inquiry which will really sort of thrash out some of those questions um, and also come to the question of what loopholes need to be closed um, and that will provide obviously parliament a basis on which to act to ensure that this can't happen again. And obviously this was not illegal. It was a constitutionally valid thing to do. It just was without precedent and uh, obviously went against uh, matters of convention. So it's uh, it's obviously this is just one sort of step in the process. Um, in terms of consequences for Morrison, that's obviously still the 
the, the issue that we have and that there's no no sort of clear pathway to sort of hold him to account for these decisions. Obviously, there's the prospect of him being referred to the Privileges Committee. Um, there's a prospect of him facing a censure motion in Parliament. Um, the problem with the Privileges Committee referral is that notifying Parliament of the ministerial changes is, again, it's a, it's a courtesy, it's a convention, it, it's not a requirement of the Parliament. Um, so, you know, there's sort of a lot of grey area here, which clearly the government has flagged it wants to fix to ensure that this is not open to interpretation, is not subject to the whims of the government of the day, but is something that is um, not just sort of the constitutional convention but something that is actually uh, a legal requirement so that um, obviously this can't happen again. Yeah, because it does make you realise how much of the Westminster tradition relies on convention. Mm. It relies on people doing the right thing, (laughs) essentially. Uh, And I think this has been really revealing in showing all it takes is one person, you know, acting in secret to upend the whole system of accountability. It's a, it's a bit alarming to say the least. Yeah. And look, there's obviously still questions about um, the Governor General's role in this, um, the people within the department who knew about this, who obviously, can, you know, that convention uh, required them to have that information made public. So clearly people did know about this. It wasn't just Morrison, you know, in a, in a, in a room by himself signing the administrative order and making the decision not to publish it himself. There were other people involved. So um, I doubt we're going to see accountability from all the people who are involved, um, but certainly it's not going to go away anytime soon. There's still this inquiry to, to, um, to, to, to come and also obviously what action the parliament may take in terms of trying to at least reprimand Scott Morrison. Yeah, because um, this idea that it wasn't illegal I find to be just appalling, you know, the idea that that's the bar that we have to clear is so low, uh, it's not illegal. Um, But I think also there's other integrity issues around. The Australia Institute and the Grattan Institute more recently have done a lot of research into kind of grants with ministerial discretion being really skewed towards political outcomes instead of decided in the national interest. Um, People can find that on australiainstitute.org.au about grants with ministerial discretion. Lots of money going to coalition seats, not so much um, outside of that. Political appointments to the AAT. And Sarah, obviously, we've got uh, expecting draft legislation for uh, a federal ICAC to come in soon. But uh, again, with this stuff and corruption in general, it's not necessarily illegal, is it? So it's not clear that this kind of stuff would end up uh, with a federal ICAC that's supposed to be looking into kind of serious and systemic corruption. So Mm. like a lot of a lot of places for integrity to go and a lot of, I suspect, members of the parliament very interested in keeping these issues front and centre. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it is those grey areas that you talk about, which is going to be very interesting to see how the bill that is being prepared by the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus will address some of that. I mean, they've obviously suggested that they they want port barrelling um, to potentially be under its remit, but how they actually do that um, and still allow themselves to port barrel when they want uh, is uh, is going to be very intriguing to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can see that we've got uh, more than 660 people on the line with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to go pretty soon to questions from the audience. 
Uh, the first one that I've got here is from John Knox, and he says, as reported on ABCRN this morning, with 90% of our fuel supplies potentially impacted by issues in the South China Sea, would it be a good idea to seriously push the uptake of electric vehicles to provide energy security and stop pumping big dollars to the fossil fuel majors? Sarah, we had that big EV summit just on Friday, and I believe an announcement on uh, fuel efficiency standards there. Yes, that's right. So it is certainly on the the government's agenda. Um, We know, so so basically what Chris Bowen announced last week um, is that uh, they'll be releasing a discussion paper about the National Electric Vehicle Strategy and how that's going to work and also obviously looking at the the issue of fuel efficiency standards. So um, this is something that Australia has been lagging on for some time. Um, We know that we've sort of been a dumping ground for cars that um, wouldn't meet the efficiency standards of other countries. Um, So this is something that I think the government is playing a bit of catch up on Um, in terms of, you know, the the point about our our fuel security, that's also something that's on the government's agenda as well. Um, But yes, certainly something that um, the government's determined to do something about after it's sort of been, uh, you know, raised as a concern, but not much happening in that space for some time. Yeah. And Pete, fuel security is kind of one issue, but obviously we've got all those cost of living pressures with the price of petrol going up a lot. It seems to me like that's an issue that's got a lot of legs because it it, um, reaches out on a whole lot of different fronts for people. Yeah, and a whole lot of challenges for the government. The long-term answer is clearly, as the questioner put it, um, energy self-sufficiency and cars running off a renewable grid. Terrific. Um, In the meantime, you know, you've got the fuel excise that's taking a little bit of... um, heat out of the cost and that's due to be lifted in the next few months. You've got shortages, not just of of gas, but, you know, other fuel sources as well. And we've basically got to the questions that we were asking earlier, an over-reliance on a global economy where the supply chains have become brittle, not just through the pandemic, but particularly through the pandemic um, and the geopolitical circumstances. And now we go, well, where's our where's our interest being looked after? And the 40 years of economic reform has made us interreliant on a world that's becoming increasingly unreliable. So a couple of questions here, Sarah, following up on the secret ministerial appointments. Um, one asking Uh, about the Governor-General and has his role been compromised. Can you tell us what you know about that? Are there serious people kind of calling for his resignation or is there a view that the responsibility really lies with the former Prime Minister? No, I mean, I guess like all the constitutional experts are saying there aren't really sort of questions for the Governor General here. Um, he sort of followed what he was supposed to do. Um, he signs off on these uh, portfolio allocations routinely for things like when people go on leave or if, if there's a, a minister who has a conflict of interest, say, and another minister has to take over their portfolios, you know, even just particular legislation from within that portfolio. The Office of the Governor General has made it very clear that that decision was up to the government. Several days of these stories being reported, the Office of the Governor General issued a further statement saying they had no reason to um, doubt that the portfolio allocations would be made public because they assumed it was happening as a matter of course. Now, obviously, there's a sort of internal process that takes place with that that involves um, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Scott Morrison wasn't going down to Government House um, and sitting in a chair and putting his hand over a Bible and, and being sworn 
done in, in the traditional way. Um, so I guess the issue is whether there was not a sort of lack of uh, curiosity uh, on the part of the Governor-General as to why this was happening in a way that certainly um, did not seem to uh, to meet with convention. Um, we don't know yet whether he sought any further advice about that. I guess we accept the argument that in 2020, when those portfolios were first taken over, um, that perhaps at the time, obviously early in the pandemic, perhaps the Governor-General uh, just thought it was a matter of routine and was going to be published in the normal course of events. But then obviously in 2021, when Morrison also took on uh, Treasury and Home Affairs, I think that raises more questions about the process and why at that point um, the Governor-General didn't seek further legal advice about whether or not that should be made public or if he'd noticed that it hadn't been made public in previous instances, if he was just sort of signing these off and sending them back to the department, had he not noticed that they weren't made public. I mean, that's sort of something we don't know the answer to at this point, but maybe this further inquiry will get to the bottom of that. Yeah. And just sticking um, with this issue for a minute, um, what about the lack of curiosity from the former Deputy Prime Minister who kind of was made aware of this and on insiders, I was kind of shocked maybe isn't the right word at this point, but had more or less made the calculation, a completely political calculation that he was going to put the the interest of the Nationals and their additional ministerial um, positions that he had managed to negotiate over digging down into this issue when it came to his attention. Did you find that a bit extraordinary, to be honest. Well, I mean, in some ways, I don't think in anything that Barnaby Joyce says or does, um, you you tend to, you know, you tend to have a, a high bar for what is extraordinary. You know, the Joyce bar of extraordinary is is something something else. But um, yeah, look, obviously, at the time, um, you know, further questions should have been asked. I think it got sort of tied up in all the. Um, hullabaloo over net zero negotiations and the goings on between the Liberals and the Nationals at the time. Um, You know, I guess the other thing with the Pepper Levin decision and Morrison making the announcement at the time is, you know, he stood up and he said, I am making this decision. I have the authority to make this decision. People assumed and journalists included those who are paying attention to the Pepper Levin thing, which is obviously very, uh, you know, very much a local focus for, for people in those seats, but wasn't really sort of on the national agenda. Um, people knew that Pitt had been opposed to it. People knew that this was a captain's call from Scott Morrison. And I think people assumed, and, you know, they say in journalism, never assume uh, that, you know, he had uh, just had sort of pulled rank to make that decision. But no one <laughs> had any idea at that stage that he'd obviously not just pulled rank, but he, you know, pulled the portfolio mm. and had kind of almost threatened Keith Pitt saying, if you don't make the decision that I want you to make, I'll make the decision for you because I'm also secretly the minister. I mean, you know, it's fairly extraordinary that that didn't become apparent at the time and pretty extraordinary that the Nationals didn't make more of a song and dance about it at, at um, when they became aware of it um, uh, way back in mid-2021. But again, I think um, if we recall the context Barnaby Joyce was uh, busy negotiating, you know, billions of dollars for boondoggles across the regions. Uh, This was obviously something they were prepared to cop. Um, You know, they also obviously 
believed that Scott Morrison was making the decision because he thought it would help them save those seats, which they subsequently lost. Um, but, you know, clearly there was uh, political shenanigans going on behind the scenes that, again, you know, should have been made public and weren't. There's this common theme across it all that um, it's almost been staring in, in plain sight that there was mm. this huge encroachment on um, the power of the Prime Minister. I, I'm just blown away that our friends at News Limited who had the scoop of the year thought it was a positive and kind of and kind yeah. of downplayed it, which, um, you know, I'm sure they've got some justification for it, but I can't see it. But, you know, there's a, a bit of, there's a, there's a few comments in the chat sort of thinking about the role of the GG and the case for a republic and whether what what we expected the GG to do in a situation like this where it is such a purely ceremonial role and if there was a role that had some form of more legitimacy or authority to be acting on our behalf, whether it would have played out any differently. I don't know, I've got an answer to this question. And the idea, Sarah, which I think came out in the Prime Minister's press conference where he's kind of defending all of this stuff, he was more like, well, I, t- I said publicly I made the decision and it was, you know, the stupid press gallery who didn't say did you make that decision as the minister? I found that to be quite a I mean, that was just a justification as well. Like not, I mean, it was sort of emphasising that he'd made the decision but not telling the public or the parliament mm. that he made the decision as as the relevant minister at the time. Exactly. Um, I think it's just extraordinary. It was yeah. great seeing him trotting out the latest hits again at that press conference. It was like watching a Pixies concert doing their best <laughs> album, right? Uh, look, it was sort of... <laughs> I mean, the thing with this is it's so on brand, like everything about this is so Scott Morrison, like it's Scott Morrison, like condensed. It's like the essence of Scott Morrison. The genre. Yeah, it's like, you know, we we should have seen it coming because it's just, it's very much him. But, yeah, just back to your point, Eb, about, you know, stupid media who, you know, should have been aware of the intricacies of the Offshore Petroleum and Greenhouse Gas Storage (laughs) Act 2006, which I just had to quickly Google so I remembered the name of it. Um, I mean, you know, like it was sort of who, who is following close uh, who the joint decision maker is under that act, and you know was, uh, but yes, uh, Scott Morrison would never would never take responsibility for something, and uh, that press conference was yeah just absolutely true to type. Yeah, um, Sarah, I've got another question here from Robin Thurston that says, are there any potential long term ramifications between the Liberals and the Nationals after the portfolio? Takeover. We have seen that Karen Andrews, a Liberal minister, had called for his resignation. A lot of other colleagues really hadn't gone that far. But yeah, at the end of the day, it was Keith Pitt who was usurped essentially. Um, and, you know, uh, we know that as an, an agreement, um, I think one of the other nationals was talking about this being a breach of that agreement. Uh, do you think that's going to have any long term impl- implications for that partnership? Um, look, it may just degrade the the trust um, further between the two parties, which is you know ne- ne- is not high at the best of times. Um, obviously, the calculations for ministries uh, in in a coalition government are just based on crude arithmetic, and um, you know based on how many members of the Nationals are in the coalition party room, that determines how many spots they get on the front bench. Um, so I don't think 
I don't think so, um, but obviously uh, you would expect the Nationals to be going in with, they will be going in uh, as suspicious as ever at the, <laughs> with, the, with the Liberals' intentions and they'll use this, I'm sure, to uh, ensure that whatever they are able to extract in the next coalition agreement, whenever that may be, if it's, you know, who knows what the parliament will look like um, if we're ever in that situation, um, you know, at least I don't see it happening in the short term but it really depends on the numbers. I mean, the Nationals obviously did a lot better than the Liberals at the last election and the Liberals' numbers were quite diminished in the party room now. So in terms of long-term ramifications, I I don't think so, but um, yeah, perhaps just, as I said, uh, increases the level of distrust between the two. Yeah. Um, Another question here is from Sophia McGrain, uh, and she asks what effect the Morrison government's brief flirtation with lefty economic intervention during early COVID might have had on the shift in public opinion, which I think you kind of referenced, Sarah. Mm -hmm. But, Pete, you know, we had free childcare for a period of time. We had a wage subsidy scheme that the unions had pushed super hard for in JobKeeper. We doubled the unemployment benefit and lifted tens of thousands of people out of poverty overnight, after which we then plunged them back way below the poverty line. But there were some serious interventions there. Uh, Is those polling results that we've gone through today, you know, how much can we link that back to some of those big interventions during the pandemic? Weren't they trendsetters? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) And it was interesting that when it was no longer an academic argument but there was a real crisis, government needed to do the things that people want government to do all the time. And and I think the other interesting thing to reflect on was that was the moment where the public was behind Morrison and then there was this rush to snap back to normal and normal meant government staying out of the way, letting the market rear, building up the fossil fuel sector, all that stuff again. What we're seeing here is that people are saying, no, we don't want to go back to the way things were. And in fact, I I sort of read it more fundamentally that I think if you look around the world, the crisis is in, in many ways continuing. It's not like the pandemic's over and it's not like budgets are repaired and it's not like trust has been restored in our institutions. And that moment where we thought government was doing the job, like why shouldn't people expect that to be the normal? The problem, of course, is, as we said earlier, without a secure base to fund that, it does become a little bit performative. Again, this is why why I say um, if this process is managed well, um, not not to summit our way to a solution, but to set up, get the settings right for the next term or two in power with people trusting government to not just depart from their lives, but fill the needs. I think there's real positivity. And, you know, if Morrison wants to claim a bit of credit for that, good luck to him. Yeah, because Sarah, again, the calculation there um, being a a political one, on the one hand, they're not wanting to break an election promise. And as Pete said, they weren't the architect of the stage three income tax cuts. On the other hand, um, they were legislated well before we had a pandemic or any kind of economic crisis or supply Mm -hmm. chain issues or rising inflation. They were legislated in a very 
different time and there's big risks, I think, for labour, um, even if they do just the wave them through, that's, you know, much less revenue permanently um, for all future labour governments who are in as well as the obvious inequality of it. So, yeah, there's still uh, probably a long way to go on some of making the case for, for some of those yeah. reforms. I mean, the, the problem they've got is that not only are they already legislated, but they're legislated to come into effect in 2024 before the next election. So it's very yeah. difficult for them to um, do something this term uh, without breaking an election promise. But going to the next election, promising to wind something back that's already in place is is even more difficult. So Yeah, how are you going to put taxes back up again? Yeah. Like and you know that would just be a gift to the opposition. Um, people wouldn't wouldn't concern themselves with the nuance or the detail. It would just mm-hmm. be you know Labor's going to you know put put their hands. Well, the only way through would be to do a John Howard and um, seek a mandate and delay it for a year. Like that's the only way through. Yeah, I mean you'd have. I mean, yeah, yes, it'd be, potentially yeah, it'd be try de- delaying it, but they're due to come into effect in twenty twenty four. So, you know how how you know the timing of that is 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 tricky. I suspect what they will do instead is is allow them to happen, and then they'll come up with some way to sort of claw back some of that revenue through other means and take that to the next election. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to our recording of our live show, Pole Position, hosted by the Australia Institute. You can take a look at the slides discussed during the webinar on the Essential Media website. Thank you to the Guardian Australia audio team for helping getting this together. Jane Lee produced this episode and Miles Martignoni is the show's executive producer. I'm Sarah Martin. See you next time.